This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 1077 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon, uh, we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and the guests and not the radio station. Hi, I'm Henry Zucchini. I'm a local educator and um, I teach in the Brattleboro School District and I'll be one of the co-hosts today. And I'm Kelly Juno and I am also a teacher in the Brattleboro School Districts. Last week on Indigo Radio, um, Lauren hosted a show about um, anti-Zionist Jews and their views on activism and uh, the situation in Palestine. Today's show will be about homelessness and housing, uh, the different challenges of getting into housing as well as keeping housing once housing is obtained. Uh, But first we're gonna play a quick song, little intro song called Home by Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. We'll be back in a flash. Welcome back to Indigo Radio. This week we're talking about housing and homelessness. We think it uh, might be helpful to begin the show um, by stating a little bit about the state of homelessness in uh, statistical context. It's hard sometimes with human beings don't do a great job with large numbers. It's hard for us to kind of gather those things in our mind. But this one's pretty straightforward. Um, according to the National Alliance for to End Homelessness, there are more than half a million citizens who are homeless every night in this country. So... Um, So we're going to start the show with an interview with Judy Dow. She's an Abenaki educator and historian. Um, And we interviewed Judy because Judy is extremely knowledgeable about the Vermont Eugenics Survey. Uh, The Vermont Eugenics Survey was a survey um, that took place in the um, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th 20th century um, in order to label people, and they targeted poor people and indigenous people, as either defective, dependent, or delinquent. And um, Judy, uh, we, Judy and I talked um, before the interview a little bit about how people were labeled those things and um, they might be labeled dependent um, if they were receiving any alms um, or aid, alms from um, the church or aid from the state. Um, if they were part of the mother's milk program, so they got free milk at school, they'd be labeled dependent. Um, they would, um, be labeled delinquent if they, 
uh, were considered idle. So she was saying, you know, kids who went home and played video games. I mean, not that they did at the turn of the century, but if we think about nowadays, they'd all be labeled idle. <laughs> um, uh, if they, if their families were, um, if they, and then all sorts of subjective judgments. They didn't have the right kind of parents. Um, their parents weren't parenting them in the right sort of way. Um, if uh, there was any alcohol in the home. If any physical, de- you know, perceived physical defects. Or, well, yeah, then yeah. the defective mm-hmm. was any either objective or d- subjective uh, disability. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're blind, that's a more objective disability, or yeah. any other, they give you an IQ test in English and you speak French and they label you as defective because you can't take that IQ test. And, and so... You shouldn't procreate in that case. Right, yeah. and so basically the um, the tangible material results of this Vermont eugenics survey to label poor and indigenous people as defective, dependent, and delinquent was to put a mark in their file so that any authority could go to a teacher, um, anyone who had access to these records could go to in order to make crucial decisions about these people's lives. And so um, I'm going to start the interview and I, um, this is Judy talking about the ramifications for families who had these marks on the record who were targeted by the Vermont Eugenics Survey. In Burlington, filled with these files and, and, and card catalogs, and people of authority. like teachers or priests or doctors or lawyers or politicians or someone of authority who wants to know something about a specific family. They could come and look through these files and read up on the research that had been collected by um, the Vermont Eugenics Surveys, and um, and then they could... Um, use that to institutionalize somebody, to keep an eye on them, to, to, they, it was used against them in many ways. And, and sometimes the consequences, um, were drastic. They broke up family. Um, and it, it just was disastrous for families. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about um, children being seized and put in foster care and parents being institutionalized as a result of this survey? Well, there's lots and lots of stories in the records, but many times people have said um, to us, you know, I don't know what happened to my family. They, we went, they, the rec- my aunt and uncle, we went to visit them, and all of a sudden they were gone. And so then... Uh, we would do research and we would find out many things like maybe um, they were they were had alcohol in the house and so they would end up being put in prison for having alcohol because of prohibition and then you can't leave the children alone so then the children were institutionalized um, and there's just numerous stories like that um, some had to you know had had were even less of an infraction than that, and some were worse um, infractions. And um, a big thing that got a lot of people was cohabitation. Um, so it was illegal to cohabitate if you were not. back a little bit um as it sometimes happens with community radio we have a little bit of technical difficulty we're trying to believe it or not we're trying to take a a phone plug it into the board and then run it through the phone the interview to you and because the cord is not perfectly connected to the phone uh, we're having a little technical difficulty so it's actually quite fine because we we just did this interview today so i think we can and kelly you you talked to her directly so maybe you can we can discuss that a little bit what she said and then maybe make the connection between what she's talking about in homelessness, because to some listeners, I might go, what's the connection here? And there is a fairly, I think, um, distinct connection between the two. Yeah, so Henry, so I got it back, so we'll start again in just a second, and um, and 
I just want to say that, so she's talking about um, people being disappeared essentially into institutions and families being split up and children being institutionalized and, and parents being institutionalized as well. And, um, and one of the reasons we interviewed Judy is because um, this rhetoric around who is a person who can be a productive member of society and who cannot has, has, has been a historical um, cause of why um, people are homeless and why people continue to struggle getting and keeping housing, getting and keeping jobs. Um, mm-hmm. So she's going to keep talking. I just got it back. So she's going to keep talking about um, the different ways that the eugenics survey created struggle in people's lives. And if it malfunctions again, we'll come back and (laughs) give it another shot. We'll just talk about it. So here we go. Attempt number two. We're even less of an infraction than that, and some were worse um, infractions. And um, a big thing that got a lot of people was cohabitation. Um, So it was illegal to cohabitate if you were not married. And... Um, so, for instance, um, uh, a husband and wife where the husband dies and, and the wife is left to raise five, six, seven children, mm-hmm. um, it's really difficult. So often a family member will move in and help the family raise the children. Well, if they're not married, it's considered cohabitation, and that would often and um, see a family being divided and... Um, institutionalized and this division of separating children from their families um, is traumatic for a child Um, but the world they know all of a sudden changes and um, sometimes the the trauma got worse Um, the the institutions they were placed in um, might have had negative impacts on the child and sometimes um, the child was put out to work, um, like as a mother's helper or work on a farm for the summer um, to help finance the orphanage or the institution they were staying at. And again, it, it was this um, enslaved labor that, that added trauma to the, to the kid's historical memory. And so... So then along comes the foster parent who may or may not want to help this child, and, but the child is rebellious and, and resistant because he's, he and she, or she has learned to not be trusting because of previous experiences. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many stories where, where um, you can read through the records and you can see um, stories like, um, kids being bribed by the people in the institutions with chocolate bars um, to get them to tell them where the rest of their family is and stuff like that. And so they learn not to trust. And that lack of trust just seems to increase the resistance they have in um, whatever experience comes next. And with, yeah. With foster homes, that could be now really negative or positive and um many times even if it was a positive experience um the child saw it as a negative because it was one more thing that broke up history and continuity and took him further from his family yeah so judy i feel like you really just um touched on this but can you just make really explicit your understanding between the connection between being institutionalized and put in foster care and having families broken up as a result of this survey and housing insecurity and homelessness today? Hmm. Well, historical trauma becomes generational trauma, right? Um, yeah. And, and so you grow up with um, language, like as a child, I often heard, um, oh, you've got to be good, you can't do this, don't talk about anything that's talked about in this house, you might end up in week school, which was one of the institutions. And so that story, that trauma gets passed from generation to generation. And in my family, it it happened over and over again. My family was targeted by the eugenics records, and 
and um, my father, as a child, was institutionalized at at St. Joseph Orphanage because um, his father and mother, my grandparents, had divorced, and I thought it unusual that they had divorced during this period of time, so I started to look for the records, and when I found the divorce decree, it, it said that um, my grandmother had abandoned the family, and um, my grandfather found it difficult to work a full-time job and take care of a five- and six-year-old, so my father was placed in the orphanage. It was not a pleasant experience for him, and he often ran away. Um, and um, when I continued to, when I talked to my father about it, he's like, "Yeah, she just she just left us, but she died right after that, so that's probably why she left us." And so I started to look for her death certificate, and she had actually um, been scooped up and placed in Waterbury State Hospital, unbeknownst to the family, and she died when my 10 years later when my father was 16 and my father never knew that Mm -hmm. and um so because my father kept running away from the orphanage and going back home they moved him to another orphanage that was further away um and so when he was like eight or nine and could better care for himself my grandfather took him back home but um but that trauma never left him. It always yeah. stayed with him. And I heard growing up myself all the comments that he heard as a child. You know, be careful. Mm-hmm. Talk about, only talk about what is talked about in this house and it will stay in this house. Don't talk about it out of the house. You know, uh-huh. all those kinds of fears that that you grow up with. Yep. And bringing it back to... Um, foster children um, it's just it's just that they these memories stay with them I once um, interviewed two sisters who were also at St. Joseph Orphanage and and they had um, two different experiences in their life there and um, one of them every summer was farmed out to work on a farm um and they got all they got was just food and a a bed and she she, it was devastating for her she felt like she was enslaved and she worked all summer very very hard in the fields. the other sister was a totally different story and um and it was their behaviors it was how they um received the catholic church and the and the process of being at St. Joseph orphanage and um so the one that was treated differently ended up being a coming a teacher and um teaching at a catholic school and the other one today still struggles terribly um with terrible terrible memories yeah so yeah, and you and I also great. mentioned, we talked about how, um, you know, being placed in foster care, you may not receive, the foster child may not receive the same um, resources as the biological children. Um, yeah. So that there's, yeah. Sometimes that's true um, um, because the foster child is like in one case, one, in one case, um, um, a, a child who was placed in Kernhattan was um, was farmed out every year as mother's helper to help a mother who had just had a baby and she had lots of children or for whatever reason to help the mother. And she re- often rebelled because she was receiving so much work and the other children weren't. And she just worked, worked, worked all the time so that... Yeah. Often they would send her back to Kern Hatton and said it wasn't working out. She didn't want to do the work. And so then they would try another home, and many times the same thing would happen over and over yeah. again because the children, the biological children, didn't have to work, and she had to work to pick up everything that the biological children left behind, and she mm-hmm. was just a child herself. Yeah, yeah. 
Julie, do you want to share any last thoughts with us before um, we are before we end? Well, um, it's just that that I know there's a lot of good people out there that are foster parents and and um, and sometimes a lack of education um, makes it so that they don't understand the 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 issues that are coming with the child and. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think education is critical to help yep. people um, do what what is right. Okay, so that was basically the the entirety of the interview. We kind of until the very end, there got it back together. Do we want to? Um, do you want to discuss a little bit more the connections that you saw? Because obviously, you're talking about the eugenics movement and the nature of foster, foster care, but we want to tie that into our conversation about housing and homelessness. Did yeah. you have things to say? Well, about it's that? actually um, in doing the uh, research to do this show today, I was so uh, struck by how much it takes f- um, in the system that we live in for individuals to have the right behavior and all the make all the right choices and the right financial situation and the right history in order to obtain housing. And that stuff like um, trauma and being separated from your family and being, um, she said, you know, farmed out and essentially enslaved on these farms over the summer um, so that the boarding schools didn't have to take care of kids over the summer. Um, Like all these things make it, just even more barriers for people to be that make those like quote unquote right making the right choices in order to um, obtain housing because mm-hmm. in this system it's housing not is not a right. right it's not a right exactly so it's something that you have to pay for in a, in a capitalist society everything yep. if it's something that can't be profited from it's very difficult to obtain especially if you don't have the means to obtain it yeah. yeah, and Henry, I interviewed um, a man on the street, and he, um, a couple people who are homeless in Brattleboro, and one of them actually was in foster care, and he talks about being in foster care. Um, yeah, and so maybe um, uh, you could read a little bit of his response about how foster care affected him. Okay, yeah, so he says, um, and we're calling him Jonathan, but we're using a pseudonym, um, but um, he says, oh, foster care. Yeah, I was in foster care from when I was 13 until I was 17. And I was definitely, it was definitely an experience in my life that I will never forget. It's not something I ever wanted or I even thought would happen. I lost my father when I was nine and then my mother when I was 12. So I didn't have anybody. My brothers and sisters, they're all on their own. They got their own families and so they couldn't help me or take me in. So I wound up in foster care because of it and became very angry at the world. And foster care was like... I didn't think it was meant for me. But at the time, I didn't realize that I was where I needed to be. But I didn't think I was. But they were actually trying to help me. And I thought that they were trying to, I don't know even how to say it, that they were trying to degrade me or make me feel like I was just another kid going through something. But I now see they're actually trying to help me. And I should have stuck to it. And I should have finished school. And I should have done what I did. It's not what everybody thinks it is. Foster care is not some bad place for kids. I'll tell you that. There's a lot of families out there that actually care about foster kids and actually take care of them and see it through. And I didn't realize that at the time. But that speaks a little bit to just the trauma that he had already experienced and why it was even difficult for him, even though the family he was with sounded like was a pretty decent family. It just was hard for him to accept that and be be there because he'd already been so traumatized in his life. Um, Right. And then there's like this sense of like he's blaming himself a little bit. Should have done this, should have done that. Like, you know, he's a he's a child um, making these decisions because he just lost both of his parents. And and like Judy said, like there's some wonderful foster parents out there. And um, but just that, like the things that happen in people's lives that make them make it hard to get out of the struggle of basic living and the fact that housing isn't a right makes it so people who have that historical, like have that struggle, have it even harder, have it even harder to get housing. It's a massive barrier, um, psychological barrier and often economic barrier to actually getting housing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to play a quick, we'll take a quick song break and be back after the break um, to discuss a little bit more um, about homelessness. In this case, we're going to turn our attention a little bit to more veterans and um, some of the struggles they face as um, uh, homeless individuals. So we'll go a little to a song and then we'll be back in a minute. In the bar, I 
Back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today we're discussing homelessness at the local and national levels and housing. Um, we're going to shift our, our attention right now to a little bit more of a focus on veterans and the things that they face um, regarding homelessness. I want to just read a little bit of data here. Approximately 40% of homeless men are veterans, although veterans comprise only 34% of the adult male population. Uh, the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans estimates that on any given night, 200,000 veterans are homeless, and 400,000 veterans will experience homelessness during the course of a year. 97% of those homeless veterans will be male. Um, and so, Kelly, you want to take it from here a little bit? Uh, sure. So um, I did an interview with my mother. She is... Um, she is a social worker at the uh, VA in Northampton, and um, she her primary job is to help um, homeless and um, disabled veterans get into housing. And so I'm going to play the interview that I did with her around um, issues of housing um, and veterans. And so here is uh, Carmen Juno talking about housing. veterans and housing? I have been a social worker at the VA for uh, about 12 years. I've worked in the Healthcare for Homeless Veterans Department and specifically under that I've worked in housing for veterans who have a history of homelessness, usually chronic homelessness, or who are at risk of um, being evicted or being homeless soon. And can you talk about some of the challenges that veterans face when they're um, looking to get into housing? I think that veterans face a number of challenges when looking into housing. First of all, um, for veterans, as for other people, I should say, who have a history of homelessness or who on the, are on the verge of eviction through a court process, um, one of the biggest obstacles is financial. Housing has gotten to a certain place in many parts of the country where um, many, you know, a, a pretty big percentage of people are almost priced out of the market or are paying way more than their expected percentage of rent towards or of income towards rent. So housing stock, housing prices. Um, the veterans that I work with 
have all been low income. So um, many of them are either on disability that keeps them in a low income bracket, um, and some of them have had sporadic work histories um, such that, you know, the employment and the reimbursement for that has kept them in a low income. So that's the number one obstacle. Um, when you go looking for housing for somebody who's been chronically homeless or on the verge of eviction, there are those obstacles to overcome. In other words, most landlords want references from previous landlords, um, and many landlords and certainly management companies for apartment buildings will check um, court and eviction history. And having an eviction come up on your court history um, is usually a signal to the landlord that, you know, they may be in for a problem. So those kinds of issues also surface with um, veterans who've had chronic homelessness. And can you talk a little bit about um, landlords' attitudes? And Because I know that you um, negotiate a lot with landlords, so kind of what their attitudes are around housing veterans who may not have all those credentials? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that we do in our department is we have Section 8 vouchers specifically for veterans. So, for example, anybody in Massachusetts can apply for a Section 8 voucher, anybody who's low income. You know, in Western Massachusetts, there's often an 8- to 10-year waiting list. But we have vouchers, vouchers specifically earmarked for veterans. So... We screen veterans for history of homelessness and low income, and we award the vouchers to veterans who fit in those categories. Um, but then they have to go out and look for an apartment just like anybody would. And um, we have to be creative when we talk to landlords. Um, it depends a little bit on supply and demand. Sometimes if a landlord has been advertising an apartment, or they've had a vacancy, let's say an apartment complex has had a vacancy for a while, they're much more likely to consider somebody with not a stellar history than if they never have vacancies and they can always get the best tenants. So that's, you know, that's always a factor in any housing search. Secondly, um, we, uh, most of our landlords don't do credit checks. Sometimes they do and they'll say this person has poor credit and we explained that now they have a housing voucher that will allow them to um, pay only 35% of their income for rent so, they can, so they'll be able to afford it. That's usually the least obstacle, the financial you know, credit problems that they may have. Um, there might be uh, police record problems if a landlord checks not only the eviction history but the um, criminal record um, background check. Um, many of our veterans have a, have a criminal record of some sort. Um, so we try to work, we also work with the veterans to put their best foot forward. Um, I work with them closely in the first time I meet with them to say, how would you present yourself to a landlord? Here's an apartment you're interested in. It looks like it might be possible. You're going to make a phone call. What are you going to say to the landlord? And I coach them in how to um, not say too much because it's better to get your foot in the door and have the landlord see you, um, but to put your best foot forward. For example, I'm a veteran with a steady income. Uh, I don't have any pets. I don't smoke. That's always a big one because most properties are going no smoking. So, so I coach the, the potential tenant, the veteran, and we do have relationships with some landlords, and there are some landlords who've had good experiences with our veterans and are willing to continue to rent and actually call us when they have vacancies. There are other landlords who've had terrible experiences, and they basically, they're not allowed to say this, but they basically say, never again, don't call me. It's, a, it's illegal for them to say. Well, it's, it's illegal for them to discriminate with a Section 8 um uh, tenant, potential tenant, um, but um, whether they're a veteran or not, that discrimination is not legal. But but landlords have a way around that. You know, they'll hear who I am or if the veteran has a voucher through us, 
and they'll just say, oh, that that apartment was already rented or, you know, something like that to get around that. Yeah. You know, we don't usually push landlords to deal with that discriminatory aspect because it already takes so much energy to get folks into housing. We just, you know, we don't have the legal arm to go after them. Right. So once veterans are um, in housing and you've gotten them into an apartment, what are some of the challenges that they face um, staying in their new apartment? Mm-hmm. I think there are, there are, um, there are, Three. One is sort of the umbrella challenge of suddenly living alone, closing the door and being by yourself. Most of the people we went to are single veterans, although, you know, families take priority and there are couples as well. But a lot of these veterans are single. They burnt their family bridges. So instead of staying, staying at a shelter um, or with other veterans or couch surfing somewhere, they suddenly find themselves alone Um and this leads to, especially those with a disability income, to a lot of unstructured alone time. And that often leads anybody who has had a substance abuse problem with alcohol uh, or drugs, um, that will often lead back to a relapse with those substances because people are just struggling with how to craft their life in a way that makes sense and suddenly being, you know, there um, uh, behind a closed door. So what we do is after somebody gets housing, we make regular home visits. We um, emphasize the importance of going out, whether it's to AA meetings, whether it's to veteran-sponsored relapse prevention groups, whether it's getting a job. Not everybody's on disability. So some people, once they settle in an apartment, um, we have employment coordinators who can help them get a job. Um, looking into volunteer opportunities. So a big emphasis is getting out and being in touch with other people, especially other veterans, because they all they all have a bond. Um, a lot of these veterans have burnt out many of their family connections. So we act, you know, we don't come in heavy. We're not sort of the, you know, the police coming to see if they are keeping their apartment clean or smoking pot in their apartment, that is not our intent. Our intent is to stand by their side. As a team, to help them if there's a landlord complaint, to help them figure out a solution if they didn't manage their money right for, you know, and can't pay their electric bill or something, um, to just mm, help them with transportation at certain times to appointments, um, because a lot of them do not have vehicles either. Transportation is a big issue. So really to stand by them as, as a family member or friend would and um, support them in making good decisions getting out of the apartment and establishing community connections. Yeah. Um, and so, like, looking forward into the future, if you could kind of wave a magic wand, what would what do you think, um, what actions do you think would help veterans um, obtain and stay in housing better? Um, well, given veterans with the same kind of history that I've described, chronic homelessness, uh, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, um, limited income. Um, I think um, having, having more housing stock available so that the housing stock is quality, some of our veterans luck out and get that. Some of our veterans luck out and get a nice apartment that's within walking distance of a town or right on a bus route. Those are all really good things. Um, you know, there are some other interesting things happening in Western Mass. For example, um, I think it's the Episcopal Diocese has now put on a, a weekly veterans lunch all up and down the valley in Greenfield, South Deerfield, Northampton, Holyoke, and Springfield. Once a week, there's a veterans lunch where veterans can come. It's absolutely free. They can bring friends and family. I've attended with a couple of my veterans as well, and they invited me. 
And it's a place to go and have lunch, connect with other veterans. Uh, a lot of times announcements are made about other activities. A lot of times announcements are made about volunteer opportunities. So that kind of, you know, community connection to bring people together, um, people really enjoy that. And um, if there were more opportunities like that, um, I think that would be to the benefit of these folks who are, you know, trying to, uh, get, as I said before, craft a life and live independently yeah. and, you know, um, make friends and have something meaningful to do during the day. Right. And just one last quick question. Um, is there a housing shortage in Western Mass? Like, is there enough housing for everyone? I mean, the vacancy rate in places like around the five college area, Northampton, East Hampton, Amherst, it's very low. The other problem that we, we, that we run into um, is that certain real estate management companies um, have a large foothold in renting. So landlords will turn to them to vet their renters, and um, they, they have often screened out um, many of our tenants, many of our veterans, even if they have some sort of, um, some sort of rental history, and then they require a half a month's um, finder's fee as soon as, a, as soon as an apartment is found. That is just prohibitively expensive. I mean, most of the people I work with do not have first, last security and a right. finder's fee. We can dip into special veterans funds for the security and the last month's rent, but we cannot do that for a renter's fee. We've tried to discuss this with a couple of the larger rental management agencies, and they've really turned a deaf ear. Um, places like that are more outlying, like Greenfield and Springfield, um, Chicopee, I mean, those places have more housing stock that are a little less expensive. Um, so definitely we have people housed there. The combination of low vacancy rate and um, sometimes these rental management companies that will come in and will just really build a wall in a way between between tenants and apartments. Yeah. Hey, well, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay, you're very welcome. Okay. Bye. Thank you for having me. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Okay, so that was a fairly interesting interview with. Carmen, your mother's name is right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carmen Juno, and she works um, with homeless veterans in the Western Mass area, trying to find them housing. And I thought we'd just have to take a little bit of time to, to discuss that and kind of the irony, I guess, on some level of veterans serving the interests of the, the elites and of capital in this country and then coming home from, from their job, so to speak, and not having access uh, to these, I mean, they, some of them are Section 8, like she said, but even that isn't isn't a, a cure-all. And it's just, and you and I were talking about that before the show, the kind of irony of that and how kind of distorted that is. Yeah, one of the things that struck me as I was talking to her is um, how one gate that um, veterans have to get through in order to get housing, like the rest of us, but it's particularly pertinent because these veterans have... Um, been into war for um the state that is going then having to go through a private landlord and that private landlord and their ideas and their history and their you know their landlord's fees and all that their finder's fees um that's an all, all another gate to getting through housing so they still have to go through a privatized housing industry um because housing's not a right and in spite of the fact that they have given themselves and given their lives in a certain way in order to, um, you know, serve the, the U.S. government's military, um, that they are still subject to a privatized housing industry. And I know because, like, I, I talked to my mom, of course, about she, ta she deals a lot with landlords and putting out fires and negotiating with them. Um, but they ultimately, um, tenants, yes, there is a legal system, but tenants are often at the mercy of um, a landlord's decision. And so the, the veterans are still a victim of the profit system because if they're viewed as something or someone that can't be made a profit off of, then they'll be blacklisted. Um, even the, even the, the veterans 
you know, the Veterans Affairs group themselves will be blacklisted by certain landlords. She made it sound like they won't even return their calls at times. So they get um, they get black, blacklisted as a result of their affiliation, their trauma right. that they experience. Right. Um, and yeah. actually also, um, it struck me, this just this other component to housing is transportation. She said, you know, sometimes a veteran will get lucky and they'll have a, they'll enter into a decent apartment that's either walkable into town or that's on a bus line. And thinking about transportation as another aspect of housing, if you don't have a car, then living in a place where you don't have ready access to town or to public transportation could also make housing, could be another barrier to obtaining and maintaining um, housing. And also, before we, we're going to go to break, a song break in a, in a second here and an um, underwriter's announcement, but just to make the point, too, that veterans are kind of um, hurt on, on two different levels. They're hurt on the level of, of being sent off to war, oftentimes being traumatized, and then they come home, they can't find housing, and part of the reason they don't have access to public housing that's, that's beneficial and helpful is that we spend so much money on the military that there isn't any there isn't enough money supposedly supposedly left for um for human services like housing people because so much of the money goes to private weapons manufacturers who are making literally a killing off of the selling of weapons to the u.s government and so that 600 billion of the discretionary budget goes not to housing people and not to but to fomenting more war and so it's kind of a, a double screwing the way i see it and making um our brothers and sisters overseas homeless as well by destroying their houses. Yeah, so maybe it's a triple vicious circle. So yeah. it's unfortunately a, a rever- the, the U.S. militarism and its posture is harming not only those abroad but veterans at home, um, both in the trauma they experience in being in war and then the trauma they experience in not being able to be housed or properly properly fed, properly housed um, when, when they return here. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Okay. So we'll take a break here. When we get back from the break, we're going to discuss a little bit about the broader economics of um, the U.S. economic situation and try to find out, do we have enough money to house people publicly? Um, do, is there actually sufficient money in that country? And also, we want to have a little... We um, Kelly, you interviewed a few um, veterans before. No, um, they're not. They're not veterans. Sorry, they're people uh, on the streets. People in Bradford. the streets living in Brattleboro. Sorry, um, that that are um, homeless. And I want to to read another clip from a man describing what his life is like, so we can get a sense of what uh, bring it to a local level. What it's like for someone to be homeless here in Brattleboro. So we'll, we'll take a little time to read that too. So back in a flash. wandering worker i go from town to town and the police make it hard wherever i may go and i ain't got no home in this world Brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road, a hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door, and I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Was a farming on the shares and always I was poor. My crops I lay into the banker's store. My wife took down and died up on the cabin floor. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Thank you. 
Now as I look around, it's mighty plain to see This world is such a great and a funny place to be Oh, the gambling man is rich and the working man is poor And I ain't got no home in this world anymore Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Uh, Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. And today, uh, I'm Kelly, and I'm here with Henry in the studio, and today we're talking about housing and um, moving... um, homeless people into housing and um how um the challenges around that and the challenges around maintaining housing and so at this point it might be just to set the kind of the economic context um of what's going on with with homelessness and lack of housing in a in a u.s context because i think it's important to for us to realize how much money is actually in the economy and where it's going a little bit so um Last year, CEO pay was um, an all-time high. It used to be in the 1950s. It was 20 times that of the average worker, and the recent data puts it at 361 times the average um, pay. So CEO on average is making 361 times that of an average worker. The billionaires who make up the Forbes 500 list of richest Americans now have as, so as 400 people now as much wealth as all African American households plus one third of Latin America uh, of uh, Latino or Hispanic Americans um, uh, households. So combined, combined, right? So um, just a little bit of a snapshot of where the money goes and how much money um, is um, is out there and where where it's being spent or who's who's getting it. Um, so, uh, we just played a couple interviews, one, uh, regarding, um, the Vermont eugenics program and the connections, the historical connections between that and housing and homelessness and one around, um, veterans and, um, obtaining and maintaining housing. And, um, I, I mean, I I feel like what really strikes me about, um, thinking about housing and about doing those interviews and talking with, um, Judy and with my mom, Carmen, um, is around, um, like I said, having the right kind of credentials, being the right kind of person, having the right kind of behavior for you to pass through those gates in order to obtain and maintain a house. Um, Because A, there isn't enough quality housing in this country for every single person at this point in time to have a home, so more does need to be actually built. Mm -hmm. Um, And the question is, do we think that private individuals should be able to own um, housing and be landlords? Um, or should that be a public entity where um, we're not going through landlords? Um, so I, in my um, discussions with some people on the streets here in Brattleboro, I was able to ask them um, just what they think Brattleboro can be doing better to help people who are homeless. And do you want to read one of them, Henry? Sure, I will. Um, I can read Michael's. Um, And these are pseudonyms. We didn't use their their actual names. Um, So it says, um, what could Bradley be doing doing better to help people who are homeless? Um, And and Michael said, I think they could have a, a team that goes around and picks up people and finds odd jobs to clean up and pays them for a day of work or something like that, you know? And they definitely, I mean, they've already in the process of turning the lamplighter into apartments for low, low-income people, and Morningside helps you, but there's a waiting list to get on that list. And the homeless shelter, the warming shelter just closed, 
and it's it closed on the 4th of April. And they provided housing through the nighttime, but you had to go there between 5 and 6 and get on a bus and take the bus to Austin School, and they would take you they would wake you up between 5 and 6 in the morning and shuttle you back down and you'd be outside all day. I mean, I think there could be more food available, more donations of food and maybe vouchers to restaurants or something. You know, that would be cool. Overall, you get used to it, but it's still hard. It's not where you want to be. Yeah, again, those caveats to mm -hmm. housing. Oh, you have a shelter, but you have to leave between 5 and 6 in the morning. And you have to make sure if you're there at the bus at 5 or 6, or if not, right. you, you miss the bus. And it's you can't really, I, I guess you could work, walk from downtown to Austin School. It's a pretty long walk, especially when it's 10 below zero. Yeah, and I do understand the challenges that the organization, that Groundworks faces in doing this kind they're of work. They're huge, yeah, they're huge. They're huge, yeah. but um, it's just kind of another demonstration of the challenges of coordinating housing for people who don't have permanent housing. Right. And the other thing is that both of the people who I interviewed had no identification. Yes. And that's a huge barrier mm -hmm. because it's hard to get identification without identification. Yeah. Um, they had been lost or stolen, and so um, that was kind of another barrier and the the other guy i talked to be um i'll just read a, a very short qu um quote from him he said i definitely feel like the community could get together and figure out some type of establishment or some type of homes for us homeless people granted we don't have any income and you know a lot of us don't work that's therefore that's why we're homeless and we don't have a place to stay but i feel like they could come together and try to figure out something as far as housing um, and so he just directly said it. Um, we need homes and homes that do not have any prerequisites. Right. So maybe you, you want to take a little bit about the, what, what the Housing First initiative is? Sure. So a lot of um, um, cities, municipalities around the country have been looking into and implementing something called the Housing First movement, which basically says we don't care about your ID. We don't care about your you know, your prerequisites, the trauma you face. I mean, they, they might care later, but the first concern is we want to get you into a home and we're going to do it, generally speaking, although not always, with no questions asked. And ideally, the better programs are those that house people without where they are. They don't move them across town or to another state or another, <laughs> another city far away. They, they move them to somewhere where they're already more or less living. And it's, it's been proven to be fairly effective as far as getting people into homes and keeping them there. No questions asked, just do it. And it's it's a step, I would say, in the right direction, um, at least getting people food, clothing, shelter, that mm -hmm. ticking that box. But you and I talked, there are still some inherent issues with that because uh, you read an article that said housing first, but what's but come what second? Comes second? And so yep. you wanted to address that briefly. Well, just that like exactly like um, what uh, my mom, Carmen, said is, you know, veterans, they get in this apartment and they close the door. And how do you craft your life how do you build a meaningful life for yourself now that you have your kind of one of your most basic needs met in order to kind of um uh keep your housing and to have stability in your life and to be able to be able to keep a job um and so this article i read did talk about um trying to implement programs and like meaningful programming for people who are in housing and helping people find work and make connections um, and some of the barriers to that. Right. And I, I think the, the larger issue with U.S. society is, okay, you can say housing first and get people in, but how outrageous is it with a government as, as rich as ours, essentially as rich as ours, and spending, as we said, $600 billion on war and weapons every year, primarily a lot of that coming from private weapons manufacturers, mm -hmm. and that it's municipalities that have to figure out how to home their most vulnerable citizens and not the federal yeah. government. I mean, it, that to me is, is one, more, one of the long string of outrages you know, in this country that make it a large criminal enterprise. And that the shelters and um, programs often, yes, they might be funded by municipalities, by states, but they're often funded on donations from local right. community members. So it's almost like we are subsidizing the weapons industry, the military industry, because it creates so many problems right. and it like spends so an, like exorbitant amounts of money on death and killing. And then we're just, we're giving our money to charity. We're giving money to these shelters. And or state to, taxes or local taxes. Right. right. To mm -hmm. clean up like this the horrible mess. mess that they're making. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's, it reminds me of David Bubbill was a famous poet of Vermont. He had a short poem about, I think it was called Kaplan. He said, and it was very short. It said, privatized profits, socialized loss. 
Yep, and exactly. Kind of sums it up in a very short, short bit there. Well, we've come to the end of our show today. We only it's have a perfect a f- place to end. Perfect Henry. place to end, and, <laughs> and we have just to tell you, um, please tune in next week. Um, this is Brattleboro, um, this is Indigo Radio on Community Radio, Brattleboro's Community Radio Station, WBW one hundred seven point seven FM, and we will see you next week, same time, same bat channel at noon. <laughs> on Sunday, always streaming here as well on WVEW.org. So yep, please thanks for join listening. Us. Thanks. Hello, this is Wendy, the host of The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> 